I might walk into a room and if there's a, a gobby northerner in there, I feel an, an instant kind of draw to them because it's your kinship. You're like, OK, I know this person. I feel safe with them. Well, how to raise money is a question that almost every company has to face. And for fast-growing businesses, raising money is almost a full-time activity. But whether you're building a new company, working with early-stage companies, or just interested in investing yourselves, understanding what the options are available to companies who are raising funds is really helpful. Hello, Matthew Grant here, host of the Instec London podcast and partner at Instec. London, well, based on the growth of our listeners in the last month, I can only assume that many of you have actually finally exhausted your Netflix options and must be turning to podcasts to keep you entertained. Someone even confessed to binge listening to past Instec London podcasts over the weekend. Well, whether you're one of our regular friends and regular listeners or you're checking us out for the first time, delighted to have you along. And by the way, if you haven't already discovered our website, London. It is packed full of original content. We're talking to people every day. Still free, but I can't promise it's going to stay that way forever. Now, a lot to cover in this week's topic. Finding a couple of hundreds of thousands of pounds to launch a business is obviously very different from raising multiple millions from leading VC firms or even going for an IPO. And for this week's episode, we have the experience of three founders that have found early stage funding to support their companies. Now, each of them is acting as an intermediary as a broker or MGA, bringing insurance to clients from individuals to large corporates. Gonzalo de Vosconcelos previously founded crowdsourcing investment portal Syndicate Room and has now turned his attention to insurance with Renewal. Sam White is CEO of Freedom Services Group, but most recently launched Stellar Insurance in Australia and had to raise some funds to do that. Jonathan Spry is CEO and founder of Envelop Risk, providing reinsurance for cyber. This was recorded in front of a live, well, virtual and live audience in December last year, supported by Genesis. A lot of really good advice and stories in here. So I've identified the key highlights for this week's episode. And I kicked off by asking Andre Simons of Genesis why he had sponsored this event. Over the last couple of months into a year of us operating in the UK, we've helped a number of startups launch their businesses in a digital fashion. And while they are very successful at what they do, a lot of them are relatively small and they look to us for some advice about how do they fund their operations and their expansions and how do we raise capital. Now, that's kind of a funny question because Genesis has never raised capital. We've always been self-funded and we've funded our own products. We've funded our own international expansion into the UK and into Europe and into, into the US now. So we thought, well, we can't really give these people much advice and we really want to help our partners. So why don't we rather bring together a bunch of people who have done this and we listen to their story and our partners can learn from them. So you've seen a lot of people, you've been around different organizations for a while. Are there a couple of sort of key things that you see to consistently characterize successful founders? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think I think the short answer there is, and it's going to be very cliche, but it's you need to find a really good bunch of people and people that you can invest in. You know when a team is, is backable, whether they can run businesses. I mean, you look at someone that's seen like Sam and you go, you would kind of back her without even knowing what she wants to do because you know it'll probably be successful. So I think having a good, strong team is really important. When we were talking before, you had some very clear 
opinions as to once people have raised money, what they should, or maybe more importantly, what they should not be spending their money on. So again, you know, if you look at people who have been successful, how, what choices they're making with their spending. Yeah, the ones that have done well that we've, that we've partnered with um, or that we've seen grow are ones that have really been efficient with their capital. I mean, look, you know, being a self-funded company, you learn to be quite capital efficient. But it's also the ones that can actually unpick the buy versus build question. You don't need to spend a lot of money building your own technology anymore. There's a plethora of, of suppliers out there, very cost-effective, quick-to-market suppliers that uh, startups can lean on and rather, rather look at potentially buying rather than building. Great. Okay. Well, we'll come back to you later on, but many thanks for, for supporting this. Uh, so, Gonzalo, I want to switch over to you now uh, and delighted to welcome you as today the founder of Renewal, but you've already been out there with one successful business, business with Syndicate Room. So we get like a double whammy with you. We get someone who's built a business with, I think, 250 companies, you said, have been through Syndicate Room, which was a crowdfunding site. And of course, you're now building your own business. And no surprise, but you know the, the stats are fantastic. You um, you can tell us what, how quickly you raised it, but you're on Cedars and you, you hit more than three times your target fund drive raise uh, in Cedars. So, yeah, so congratulations. There's a huge amount of things we're going to unpick from you. But first of all, perhaps you should just tell us a bit about what you're going to be doing with renewal. The problem that we're addressing is the outer renewal, but also the, the just simply managing your insurance policies as a consumer. It's an over-the-top insurance platform where you can see, you can manage all your policies, you can buy, it manages the renewals for you so that you don't waste time or money. And when you say over-the-top platform, can you just explain what that means? Yeah, so that's a fancy way of saying that it plugs into loads of legacy systems so that we can run. Uh, so basically, from the consumer's perspective, all they see is one dashboard with their policies. Behind closed doors, we all sort of working, frankly, and just having all these APIs and connectors to all sort of legacy systems. And some, some of them actually very modern systems as well. Well, let's just talk a little bit about your own fundraising experience. So you, you went through crowdfunding. You use Cedars as a platform. I know you also had some angel investors behind you as well to do some of that initial support. But can you just talk through yeah, in your mind, the, the sort of thought process you went through about where to look for funds and, and why you've ended up doing it the way you've you've done it. It's important to understand that when I tried to raise money for a syndicate room, when I, you know, I wasn't known or anything like that, it took me over two years to get the first seed round. So I know how painful it can be for for entrepreneurs to get that uh, that seed uh, funding. Now with renewal, because of my background in syndicate room, but also, you know, the network of contacts that I developed didn't even take me two weeks to go from start to finish with the first seed round. So I was just very, very lucky with, you know, the background and the, the network of contacts. I didn't even have a PowerPoint when I saw spreadsheet, it was just on the back of an idea and people that trusted me. And then the second round, when I went to do it, because renewal is all about serving the customer, it just made complete sense uh, to do uh, via crowdfunding. And I had a great time. It was really good to, to get potential future customers, uh, word of mouth out there, you know, brand advocates, and to raise three times more money than we were actually asking for. So that was a way of signing people up as investors, but also you'd hope they'd then come on board as early clients, which is a model, I think, that Risk used as well. But yeah, that certainly makes a lot of sense. How, in terms of numbers, did you going into the fundraising, did you have a view as to how many people you thought you'd get 
Not a clue. Not a clue. So we end up with 624 investors, which is, which is great because, you know, if they tell three people each, then suddenly you have a massive reach before we have even launched. Bear in mind, we haven't launched yet. So as a B2C proposition, that is a great starting point. It's also a very, very risky, but, you know, we came out okay out of it, which uh, where you're validating our value proposition. Because effectively, we, we told our potential future customers, hey, this is what we are doing. And we're not even trying to sell them. We're trying to do something harder, which is, do you want to invest in us? And uh, and yeah, 624 people decided that it was a good idea, which, you know, it's uh, it's very humbling. And just to keep on with that crowdsourcing piece for a minute. So um, if, you, if people haven't got that track record like you have, is that still a, a sort of viable route to go through? And, and actually haven't got a track record and don't have any revenue coming in because it's still an early stage business. Is that a viable route or is that really only recommended if you've already got a track record? No, I think across time, one of the big benefits is that actually the track record as an individual is far less relevant as it is uh, when compared to business angels or VCs. It all comes down to your value proposition. This is, sorry, just to highlight, this applies mainly to B2C businesses. When it's B2B, it's slightly different approach, but certainly when it's B2C, so business to consumer, just to clarify what that means, uh, then it's all about the value proposition. And if you can explain it in a really clear and succinct way, to your potential future customer and they like and they think, oh, actually, you know what? This is something I'll definitely use. Mm. This is a, this is a pain point I recognize. This is a solution I'd love to see in the market. You know what? Yeah, I may invest and some people invest 10 pounds, some 500, some 5,000. Um, so it's a great way to, to validate your value proposition. What would you have done differently for your first company, given that most people, you know, not going to be in the in the position that you are of already having founded one company and then accelerated fundraising for the second? But if you're if you're starting off from scratch, mm. what's your kind of recommendations about how they reduce that time scale to raise funds? I think crowdfunding is a is a, an excellent route because you, you get really good questions. So don't get annoyed that some of the questions are so good that you think, wow, wow. Oh, I didn't think about that. You know, be prepared for tough questions, as they should be. But they are from people that are, by and large, genuinely interested in seeing you uh, becoming successful. And for people that you know, need need to find those angel investors, where would you recommend they they look? So the best way you have is try to see your local networks and try to get to to meet. Uh, other angel investors through introductions. Every time you meet an angel investor, your you, your mindset cannot be, I need a check from this person by the end of, you know, the 30-minute coffee. The mindset has to be, I want this person to want to help me, and I'm going to impress this person enough so that this person introduces me to another three people. Because those, three, those other three are very likely to be business angels, probably closer to the area that your business operates in and therefore more helpful to you. And that's exactly what I did for Syndicate Room. It does take time. That's Now with, with that people doing it remotely is actually a lot easier uh, to, to develop this network quicker. But before, you know, it was, um, yeah, it's, it's hard, but you get, you know, you, you meet one or two, that becomes three or six and then so on and so on. What about 
filtering out the people who are just kicking tires versus those sort of genuine investors, whether it's angel or you know, later stage VC round. How, how do people sort of figure out you know, whether real yeah. money is? Yeah, so those uh, people are just kicking the tires or just bored at home and they just want to hear about new ideas. Um, they are they are the greatest waste of time you may have as an entrepreneur trying to raise money when you know by definition your your company or you as an individual are running out of cash. Uh, sadly, there's no real clear way of of filtering those individuals out. If it's a VC, it's slightly easier. Right, because you can see the online the investment thesis. When did they raise money? How much money? You can sort of imagine how much money they have left based on their press releases. And you know what? If they're not the right VC for you, don't take the meeting. Don't waste your time um, because they are in the business of owning information. In the sense, if they want to invest, for example, in InsurTech, they want to meet as many uh, exciting InsurTech companies as possible. Doesn't mean if you meet your their criteria, and chances are, particularly if you're in a very early stage, you're too early for them. They all still want to meet, and they all say, "Look, we should start this an hour a year, two years in advance." That's just bullshit. If yeah. you are a pretty hot company, you go to them three to six months before, and you'll be absolutely fine. Great. Well, I think that's great advice. You know, it's much about what not to do as what to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I know you've. You found a few of your contacts for renewal through um, through Instate London, didn't you? Can you just talk a bit about, uh, about that? Yeah, I did. So I was, um, although I have fintech background uh, and I and I know, you know, a lot of people in that world due to my role of, as a syndicate room founder. When I sort of fell into InsureTech and I started digging and starting falling in love for InsureTech, I saw Instate London and I thought, ooh, great, an event. You remember those things that where people used to meet in London, everyone together having a drink in the evening? Yeah. So back then, back in the day, I went, and that's actually when I met you, Matthew, and I must have met about 80% of the people that I know in InsurTech before lockdown was definitely through uh, those evening events. And and then you just build the network uh, from there. You know, it's a small world. Everyone knows everybody else. And now with lockdown and everyone working remotely, I personally have been finding it a lot easier to get those sort of half an hour calls that become very helpful, or if actually they're not suitable for whatever reason, uh, then you didn't really waste a lot of time going into London, coming back, traveling in a tube, and etc. So, yeah. so thank you very much, Matty, for for the vast majority of people I know in this space. Hi, Irina here. Matthew gave me a chance to jump in and talk a bit about our events. As you may have seen, we speeched very successfully from doing physical events on Monday evenings with more than 250 people attending to running digital events with audience of 300 people and more and guests from around the globe. It's my job to organize all of our speakers and support our sponsors and make sure we have a good story to tell while keeping the quality of our standards high. We know that this year people are looking for fresh ways to discover new content and hear from the community. And we've got some great ideas that we'll be rolling out while continuing with our successful event hosted by Matthew and Robin. We are also now reaching an even bigger audience by taking the highlights from some of our events and turning them into podcasts, just like this one. If you want to learn more about how we are supporting our members with events or would like to support one of them yourself, email us at hello at instec.london. Sam, delighted to have you joining us today. You, I think, founded your first company, main company, age 24, and have been building out 
insurance since then with the Freedom Group and then most recently have launched a business seller in insurance in Australia, which uh, I think you're not quite there physically yet, but uh, interested to hear about what the background was for that. How did you start a business off when you're age 24? And then secondly, the interest in the lessons learned for anybody else out there at that stage fundraising but your own personal story would be great first of all well i'm pretty appalling at raising money so i'm glad i've probably got slightly less time because i learned a lot in the last conversation i sort of joke about it i the latest project stellar is the first time i've ever actually managed to successfully raise money so you could say i was pretty bad at it but then as andre was saying earlier you know i think you can create a really good business by being self-funded it just depends what sector you're in and whether you are able to generate revenues doing what you're doing fairly quickly. For me, I started from my sister's conservatory, um, which as somebody said the other day is the most middle class founder's story you could ever possibly imagine. So I might have to change it to the shed or, you know, back garden or something. Um, but, you know, I was um, phoning around insurance brokers. I had a desk and a phone and, uh, you know, 21 years ago, so yellow pages. And I was trying to persuade them to give me a chance because I knew if they would give me an opportunity to handle some of their claims, which is the business I was trying to generate, I could start to generate a bit of momentum. And I guess it's similar to your sort of 30 minute call funding conversations if you stick it out there and you, you know, you connect with people and you have the right conversations at the right time, really what you're looking for is an opportunity for somebody to give you a chance. And I think, you know, all entrepreneurs will have to go through that stage, whether it be in terms of accessing funding or getting a, that first client on board. You're really just trying to get that individual to say, OK, well, you might not have the longest track record or I might not, you know, have used your product before or a version of your product. But I'm prepared to to test it and go through that journey with you. It's a great story. And I guess the challenge of bootstrapping is I think so two immediate challenges come to mind. One is how do you charge the right prices? I mean, maybe in you what you're doing, maybe the prices are more well defined. But I think a problem for a lot of people is not necessarily charging high enough and then the kind of related question is how do you then get the funds to grow because if you can only grow as fast as your your revenue and, and you've got to pay people you know what's your sort of advice to people in that early stage if they are going down the bootstrapping route to be able to generate enough money to grow the business for me it, it was quite a simple equation i was trying to make enough money to cover my costs and not have to go back and and get a job which you know sounds very rudimentary but if you if you kind of break it down, I think breaking it down to manageable units is really important. You know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You, you, if you look at the big problem, you, you're inevitably going to lose your momentum and your enthusiasm. If you say, OK, well, you know, I need to earn four thousand pounds a month so that I can hire one other person, because if I hire one other person, they can start to do X then your first problem is just getting to the £4,000. And I'm a great believer in, you know, when you're climbing the mountain, I don't think it's always good for you to be looking at the top. I did a trek to Mont Blanc with some other insurance people a couple of years ago, and I can assure you, don't look up. (laughs) One of the things that I used to kind of make step changes in my business were um, partners that got an equal benefit from what I was doing. 
So the claims business worked with a variety of different partners, solicitors, car hire companies, etc. And I realized that what I was producing was very valuable to them and they had deeper pockets than me and, you know, um, would potentially support me in some of these endeavors. So whilst it wasn't um, raising money from an equity viewpoint, I would go to a business partner and I'd say, I think I can produce you X. However, I haven't got enough funding to be able to do that right now. So how can you potentially support me giving you what you want? And, and I did a, a number of deals like that over the years that would just give me a step change in the business. And then we'd bed that in and then carry on from there. No, that's really interesting. And then moving on to Stella. So, so I've got this correctly. Stella Insurance is for women, run by women, for auto insurance in Australia. And, and you said just yeah. earlier that you raised... You raise money for that. So, yeah, great just to hear a couple of words about, well, more than a couple of words. We'll give you a couple of minutes about Stella and then you know, your fundraising experience at this stage. My experience in Australia was a lot more um, successful than my experience in the UK because I did over the years try and raise money through various different angles, but I hit a lot of brick walls. Um, so I, I clearly need to take some more tips from this <laughs> webinar to be able to do it. But um, Stella, I made a very... Um, clear decision early doors. I'd, I'd been over to Australia. Um, I really liked it as an opportunity commercially. And I did a couple of projects that were, um, shall we say, low cost to test. And then one of the insurers um, started chatting to me about whether I would look at doing an MGA in Australia. And I made a decision um, very early on that I wouldn't do it unless I could get investment. For me, it was about making the business come alive without it actually um, being, you know, producing something. So, so that's about sticking things on the board and the pieces of the puzzle so that somebody else can see what you see. And that for me meant that I needed to get certain contracts in place so that people would have that confidence. So for an MGA, I needed a insurance capacity. So I needed to get that deal done before I could go to an investor, because otherwise it's an idea. There's lots of people that want money um, that have fantastic ideas, but investors, you know, want to know that you've got something with more substance. Now, that doesn't need to be revenues. It can be letters of intent, you know, capacity deals. Um, I did a deal with um, Bauer Media as a partnership deal, and I did a deal with um, an insurance company to provide capacity. So I was able to, to, to make that picture come alive. And then I put a, a presentation deck together and I went to uh, Willis, actually, who are a reinsurance broker in the UK. And for the first time, I said, you know, who do you think might be interested in this kind of proposition? And they recommended a insurance investor in Australia I went out to see him and he ripped my arm off to do the deal. So I didn't actually have to speak to anybody else. It was just kind of done, which was, yeah, which was great, which was absolutely fantastic. No, it was great. Great to hear that. And congratulations on that. And then just finally, before we sort of wrap up, just in terms of female founders, there's been various people that have expressed the challenges of raising funds. There's a, but there's been a couple of reports. I think Forbes did one recently about the relative success of female founders versus male founders in companies. Are you finding you know, over time that you know, we are, are we actually making progress now about you know, sort of diversity in the industry and people being more responsive to female founders coming in? Or other, I mean, I know there are still challenges, but are we, are we heading in the right direction 
Statistically, unfortunately, not. For every £100 of funding, only a pound goes to female-founded businesses. And that's not just because there's less women putting businesses forward. It, it's that they are generally not as well received. And, and there's loads of reasons behind that. You know, I don't think that there's a bunch of guys in a room making a decision that they're going to block women out. I think the intent is there. I think, you know, the insurance industry as a whole does want to improve its diversity and engage, but you, you, you really will struggle with unconscious bias. In any funding circle, people will gravitate towards people that look, act and sound like like them. And unfortunately, because it's been male dominated for such a long period of time, it will inevitably go that way. And I might walk into a room and if there's a, a gobby northerner in there, I feel an, an instant kind of draw to them because it's your kinship. You're like, OK, I know this person. I feel safe with them. And I think we do still have that challenge uh, with with female entrepreneurs that there's a lack of um, faith in them from the male investors. And they they don't quite know why, but they'll pass on deals that maybe they would have accepted otherwise. Sorry to hear it's not moving as fast as it should be. Um, Hopefully we can help change that. But Sam, thank you very much for that. I'm going to pass over to Robin and his team now. So Robin, over to you now. I can uh, disappear. Remind me never to do a startup in Australia because the idea of doing calls at 6.30 in the morning wouldn't work with me. Jonathan, welcome. You're the CEO of Envelope Risk. Your turn. You're in the spotlight. I think you have one of the most complicated businesses uh, to explain of, of anyone in InsurTech. So, so you bear with me because I'm going to have a go at this. What you guys do is you're a global specialty cyber and emerging risk insurance analytics and underwriting company. So you take data-driven underwriting expertise and advanced analytics to develop price insurance products for commercial and specialty insurers. Your, your kind of um, thesis is that specialty world needs to reinvent itself uh, for a sort of more complex, interconnected and competitive world. Um, and, and you're providing what I call as a, a kind of insurance underwriting and analytics combined as a service platform. You were amongst several uh, who then announced decent fundraising in the middle of uh, lockdown. Tell us about that. What did you raise? And were you doing it beforehand or did you start it then? How, how did that work out? We began the process before anyone knew what coronavirus was, um, but we'd only really briefed people. We certainly weren't in due diligence. Um, so once we saw the writing on the wall, what was happening in um, Italy, I guess, was a bit of a trigger point. We thought we'd better get on with this before uh, the world goes into a complete uh, freeze of isolation and, and lockdown. Um, so we were fortunate we managed to close that, you know, during the, the, the first UK lockdown. Um, and, you know, that's a, a credit to the team, but also to the investors that were, were able to continue to, to punch on through at that, at that point. How much did you raise? It was about six million dollars. Led by a VC called Alpha Intelligence Capital, who are completely new to insurance and insure tech world. And there were, of course, some challenges with that. But we'd known them for a while um, and they'd invested in a company that we'd, we'd worked very closely with previously. Uh, and in fact, were part of our corporate founding team. Um, and they, they'd asked us to attend and to speak at COGX before, which is, a, as you may know, a very large AI gathering um in, in london one of the largest in the world and we we really enjoyed that and got to know them a lot better um 
and managed to kind of persuade them that what we were doing was not just intriguing, but commercially could be feasible too. Uh, so that led us to then keep in touch and then get them to the table for this. Uh, and we were fortunate in bringing, um, you know, quite a few other investors into that as well. So. I think it's, so it's the AI bit that intrigues them rather than the insurance bit, or it's the, it's the AI being used in insurance that intrigues them. That's right. I mean, and your, your introduction to us at the beginning, Robin, in a way makes me answering the question much harder as to how, how do we get investors? The answer is that you need a strong narrative, which is pretty straightforward and simple for people to understand. Um, and I think anything that involves reinsurance rather than insurance involves the underwriting process, maybe rather than just distribution. Um, and where you're using a platform type approach. In our case, we're typically operating like an MGA. It's not a SaaS business. SaaS, that's software as a service. And Jonathan's point here is that Envelop is not only a technology company with users that pay to use a software, but of course, they're also offering insurance capabilities as well, something that some investors can sometimes take a bit of time to get their head around. It's not a SaaS business. So the, the business model, I don't think, was immediately intuitive to those investors. But once they understood it, they actually really got it very, pretty quickly um, and became very, very excited about the potential to use AI to make better underwriting decisions. And in a nutshell, that's all we're about. We're, we're just reducing the, the potential for sloppy underwriting, judgment under uncertainty and, and so on. In your career to date, you've been on both sides of the fence. So I think you're the best person amongst the assembled to ask this question to. Have you any observations on uh, the investor world right now and VCs and how they're behaving and whether or not they could do more? It's a complicated and complex space. It's nuanced. There is a lot of money flowing around in VCs. um, And InsureTech has definitely caught the imagination of those investors. I'm uh, not always particularly impressed with meeting VCs and discussing insurance and insurtech opportunities. I think there is a bigger question as to how innovation should be financed in the insurance sector and whether we should be looking towards um, a series of startups and entrepreneurial finance and VC financing on one hand or the corporates, corporate venture capital innovation labs on, on the other. Um, we, we took the view that the, the truth is, is that probably somewhere in between some kind of hybrid model of innovation where you need to be um, working with the best from the industry, but allowing new money to come in and, and teams to get started. Um, potentially would have viewed that the exits are either industry exits or there's some consolidation and the new model emerges outside of the UK, the US. I think the sophistication can be a bit higher if I'm uh, unfortunately, if, I, if I'm candid. And clearly there are exceptions. So there are a number of the, the, the firms here today have been funded by the likes of Amphimis or local globals and where they, where they genuinely have insurance expertise, particularly around the distribution side. If you move away from the familiarity of a SaaS type business model, um, if you're not necessarily as concentrated on dis- disruption and, and distribution, but actually you're trying to get to the heart of decision making and thinking about things like risk finance and capital, uh, the VC is not necessarily well versed on those topics. And, and that means, you know, you still get the questions about, well, what's your total addressable market? So, I don't know. It's how big is the insurance industry? Two, 200 billion in reinsurance, maybe 200 billion in specialty. Uh, you know, what's your sales cycle, your acquisition costs for customers? And like, well, what's the cost of phoning up a broker? I, I, these aren't questions that are really going to get you very 
high level of understanding into what what we do. And and then we were very refreshed when we found some investors that actually were more blue ocean in their thinking um, and understood that actually the power of what we're doing is an ecosystem play. We're filling some gaps there and enabling working with people like Emma Samlin and others to actually just enable the ecosystem to grow. Um, and I don't think any of us have a clue as to how big that, that could be. And there's no point sticking that in a spreadsheet and sending it to a VC, right? With people who are following in your footsteps, uh, with, with businesses like yours, what would be your top tips? Look at the investment structure and think about your cap table now, but where you want it to be and how you want it to evolve. Now, the cap table that Jonathan refers to, or capitalization table, refers to a table quite often in a spreadsheet form that shows all of a company's investors. And look out in a moment for him referring to EIS and SEIS. Uh, these are enterprise investment schemes and seed enterprise investment schemes, uh, a couple of programs in the UK that offer tax rebates for early stage investors. And we have a tendency in the UK of letting the tax tail wag the investment dog. And things like EIS, SEIS, VCT funding, that, that can be very, very helpful and powerful, um, as is, you know, the future fund and the like. But make sure that you're dealing with the fundamentals of investment. Um, and, you know, we've tended to be quite, quite successful at avoiding some of the pitfalls of VCs. We've never given away particularly horrible term sheets. Um, and if there's stuff in term sheets that, we don't like we we typically would rather find a way of being self-financing or being you know finding another source of capital than giving away lots of anti-dilution provisions and liquidation preferences and all all the rest of it well the term sheet basically defines how an investment is structured sometimes naive investors can without realizing it significantly limit their own future success in their company by giving too much away to investors. So if you are dealing with professional investment firms, well, get a good lawyer that specialises in this area. Focus on the term sheet and the cap table, and then just make sure your narrative is clear. Um, and it, it is obvious that VC investors want to see uh, a good jockey and a good horse. And in our case, we have a bigger team of jockeys with a range of skill sets. So how you get your team and how you show how you've mapped your team to your narrative and so the business uh, that you've identified, I think, is really important. I've got one question for you. Um, this analysis of you've got to have a good jockey and you've got to have a good horse. In the Intertech London parlance, between Matthew and I, who's the jockey and who's the horse, you think? <laughs> Sometimes with these pantomime horses, it's it's hard to see who's at the front and who's at the rear, right? Maybe I'll answer it that way. But is that well, I think that's a seasonal answer. It works. Uh, it works very well. Thank you. Uh, Matthew, back to you. Well, we're definitely going to be coming back to this theme in the future. And we've been delighted at Instech London to help so many early stage companies with some airtime on stage over the last few years. Many are now supporting us and the community as corporate members. Uh, we also have many investors supporting us and accessing our research with Instec London. So please do keep spreading the words if you like what you're hearing, and you can even comment and rate us if you're listening on the iPhone podcast app to tell the world what you think. That's really helpful. Uh, that's it for this week, though. Stay warm, stay safe, and we'll be back 7 o'clock next Sunday. <laughs>